You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett on assignment in the U.S. And I'm John Lee. U.S. led sanctions on Chinese technology firms were designed to be a retaining wall putting a barrier between China and the critical components needed to make the most advanced smartphones. However, Huawei drew a collective gasp when it revealed its latest smartphone, the Mate 60 Pro, is powered by a Chinese homegrown processor. It became proof that China had narrowed the gap with the West, giving tech tensions new urgency. Are Western sanctions too little too late? And how does this compare to Apple's latest iPhone? Here to discuss all things tech-related is Dan Hutchison, Vice Chair of Tech Insights. He joins us from San Jose, California. Dan, great to have you. Thanks, John Tom, for having me here. I'm really excited to be here on this podcast. Dan, your company did a teardown of Huawei's new smartphone, the Mate 60. What surprised you the most about these findings? Well, the thing that was the most surprising, we kind of expected that it was going to be a seven nanometer chip. And what surprised us the most was just the level of Chinese technology that was in there. The, you know, the modem on the, on the APU was all Chinese technology. Okay, Dan, can you put that into layman's terms? What is a seven nanometer chip and why is it so important? Yeah, okay. The funny thing about it is is that, you know, explaining what a nanometer is really crazy. It's it's like a thousand a thousandth the thickness of a human hair. But the But the, the smaller the better, but right? The smaller the yeah. better, right? And so so and what it means is is that the smaller the better means you can pack more transistors into a piece of silicon so you get more performance, your you know, your computer can do more. And so it's a it's a basic metric of technology. And uh, we go down and every two years, you try to double the density of what's on the chip. And that's the old Moore's law. So Dan, prior to the Mate 60 being unveiled, the overarching sentiment was that China was further behind on this technology than it really was. You've been watching the chip industry for decades. What surprised you the most when you learned about the chip in the Mate 60? Well, the most interesting thing about the chip in the Mate 60 was that well, one was that it was not a five nanometer, which the chip in the prior generation phone had a TSMC five nanometer part in it. So it was kind of backed up and that it was a SMIC chip. The uh, the big surprise was that it was a non-EUV chip because they don't have access to those tools. And yet it was a pretty clean uh, uh, looking set of dimensions, the layout of the chip itself. It all looked really clean and it looked as easily as good as what TSMC did when it did its seven nanometer non-EUV chip. And the West was not expecting that, was it? No, the West, there's a certain arrogance, I think, in the West in which we think we can throw these rolls out there and that the other side will just uh, won't make any progress. And in fact, with any technology, if you know it can be done and you throw enough talent at it, you can make progress. And then how does the chip performance compare to, say, other smartphones, such as maybe like the latest Samsung or the latest Xiaomi? Um, well, it's not going to be as good as a phone that has a uh, current generation three nanometer chip like what we just, we're just tearing down the Apple iPhone 15. We saw a, a Micron uh, uh, 
hit the record for DRAM density, which was around a 12 nanometer, 12, 13 nanometer node. In terms of specs, technology, how many years is the Huawei Mate 60 Pro behind the latest iPhone? It's about four years. And uh, if you look at the next generation that'll come out in a year or so, you know, if we look at the two nanometer, they're probably about five years behind the very leading edge of, of what's, you know, being developed today. Uh, but we also expect that they're developing uh, their own five nanometer part, which we expect will be here in about two more years. The chips that power Huawei's latest phone are made by SMIC or Shanghai Manufacturing International Corporation. Do you think that SMIC is actually making money producing these chips? Well, there's two sides of me on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> One side says that there's no way you would do a phone and try to produce at scale unless you knew the chips were priced right. And there's no way if you had a fab of that capability that you'd try to do this unless you believed you could yield. My sense is looking at the, the SAMs and some of our people have told me looking at the SAMs, they're really good and clean. And I would expect their yields to be somewhere in the, in the 60% range. They need to get to 80% to be world-class but it's really a question of how well their yield management is working. And to know that, we really have to have access to their probe yields and look at their wafers, uh, that sort of thing, which that's not going to happen anytime soon. So that's the one side of me that says, you know, they wouldn't do this unless they really knew they could make money at it. The other side of me says, well, they're a communist country and they can do what they want to and markets don't matter. I remember a friend of mine who had been in a Russian fab, told me in the uh, 80s, because he's in a country that they could go back and forth, sell to the US, sell to Russia at the time. And he'd been in a Russian fab and he was watching an operator smoke cigarettes and flick the ashes as she was moving wafers. And he says, aren't you worried about yield? And the fab manager looked at him and says, yield? That's a capitalist concept. <laughs> yeah. And a government like the size of China, which is the second largest economy in the world, can do what they want to. And there's no way for anyone on the outside to really know what's happening there when it comes to profitability. Yep. And semiconductors has been chosen as a critical industry for China. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, you have those two sides of it. And so the fact is, is that the profitability question may not matter. I mean, either they are or they don't care. In that sense, it doesn't matter. And eventually, the other thing with semiconductors is the more you make, the better you get at it, the higher yields go. So even if they're not profitable now, they will be at some point as long as they have that government support. So basically, if you keep on throwing money at the problem, it will eventually sort itself out. Yeah, yeah. Dan, what does Huawei's progress tell you about the effectiveness of the sanctions and their prospects for success going forward? Well, I think unlike some people that say, oh, the sanctions aren't working, I looked at it and saw, well, the sanctions are doing what originally everybody thought they were supposed to do, which was not to put Huawei out of business, but to keep them a couple generations behind, you know, keep them about four, you know, two generations is four years. And Dan, what can Huawei do to narrow the gap going forward? Well, they don't have access to EUV tools. So, you know, extreme ultraviolet tools. And this is the tools. equipment made by ASML, the right? equipment yeah. made by ASML. And uh, um, they do have access to the immersion tools that they bought, 
Plus, there's an older generation of immersion tool that's still available to them. And the immersion tool actually allows them to continue to move forward as long as they do multi-patterning. And the problem with multi-patterning is, is that it does add inaccuracies in the overlay and in the, uh, the actual dimensions of the, the chip itself. So the result of it will be that you get a lower yielding device. It doesn't perform as fast and it consumes more power than what you would like it to, than what you have with the EUV tool. But you can still pull it off. Dan, I also saw your report on the Mate 60 teardown and that your company also found some memory chips made by SK Hynix inside these phones. They weren't supposed to be inside these phones, were they? No, they weren't. Um, let me correct you. It was not my report personally. There were a lot of really good people working at this, and you know, and I've been kind of following what they've been writing about really closely and looking at their SAMs and the pictures they've been coming out. So I should give due kudos to them for what they did. The SK Hynix chips um, the were chips. a couple generations yep. back. They weren't current nodes, so it doesn't look like they actually acquired them directly from Hynix. And according to the sanctions, Hynix can't sell to Huawei. There's a myriad of ways that, that because they're commodities, those chips can work their way through the supply chain and Huawei could have picked them up uh, without them being directly coming, especially since there's a glut of memory right now. There's a huge glut of memory uh, coming because the memory producers overproduced during the shortage. They kind of drank the Kool-Aid about how great this shortage was and it was going to last. You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence. By the way, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you may be listening to us. Of course, more stars are better. Your feedback matters, and we love hearing from our listeners. Dan Hutchison, one of Apple's defining qualities has been its ability to innovate, to come up with a new idea and just dazzle the world and power its sales to new heights. Is there a perception, do you think, that Apple is starting to come up against a bit of a wall in its ability to generate that wow factor with new products? And if yes, how much are technological limitations at play here? Oh, well, technological limitations are becoming far more at play. Um, the thing about Apple, and, and realize that this is probably more my opinion, but you know, you can't discount the immense ability of Steve Jobs. And typically what I've seen in the companies I've followed is, is a good strategy will last for about five, 10 years tops before it kind of taps out when it comes to the market. And Steve had this amazing ability to look at technology that was out there, piece it together into something that was really amazing and fantastic. And, uh, I don't think Apple struggled to duplicate that. Uh, he just had an innate sense of what was really great. And um, those kind of people are really hard to find, you know, historically, you know, when you look at companies that make themselves. And Apple's struggling to reinvent itself, which the whole thing with the App Store and the, the Apple TV, that's coming along, but it's also something that there's plenty of other competitors out there doing the same thing. Once Apple has changed the world, what can it do for an encore? Yeah, that's a very difficult thing. And uh, if, if we talk about this, how Apple led with the iPhone, with the Mac and everything, 
but it missed the cloud. And it missed, uh, you know, the impact of, of what the cloud was doing, which we saw other companies like Google and uh, Facebook and Amazon come along. So really, uh, sometimes the innovation comes from other places. And that's really where we look forward to. And I think in the whole artificial intelligence arena, that's a whole spectacular area for massive innovation. It's also an area where China has a very strong leadership position. Dan, talking about innovation, Apple just released its new iPhone 15, and the buzz seems to be the adoption of a USB-C port. Is this really the major breakthrough for this phone, or is there more to it than that? No, I think that was, <laughs> that's like expected. Everybody has been telling them, you yep. need to come up with a comment. So, so, you know, but they wanted to sell more cords and make their devices more unique. And, you know, that was always the downside of, of Steve Jobs, right, was is he wanted everything to be done his way and he wanted absolute control over it. And so I just don't see any value. In fact, for me, the, as a photographer, the more exciting part about the iPhone 15 is, is the new cameras that come with it and the ability that they've done. And, and the Apple's phones have really become driven by what their cameras could do. And I'm surprised that it, that didn't generate more excitement. What about the A17 chip, Dan Hutchison? Uh, you just mentioned that consumers seem to gravitate more toward the gadgets and the gizmos, the cameras. Is the A17 chip, is there anything really game-changing in there? Well, the big game-changer for it's going to be that you'll get longer battery life and you will get more performance. But I also think it's probably somewhere near where the PC hit, where we're beginning to see less and less performance. So in terms of, you know, does your call go through all that? That's the same. When you really see the performance is things like in the uh, artificial intelligence application to the image processing for the camera itself. And so you get much better stabilization, much lower light, much more realistic images and things like that. The, the camera has become the big reason to upgrade. Dan, there's been some excitement that the new iPhone uh, with the A17 chip could be a breakthrough for gaming. Um, I know that, you know, some versions of Resident Evil have arrived on the iPhone. Do you think this is a major game changer? Well, you know, if you look at kids and everything, they're all using their phones and their iPads for gaming, and they're not using laptops or computers. And this is the big advantage of this chip. I come back, I, I mentioned the performance and you see it in the AI processing for images. You're also gonna see it in the speed and reactiveness in gaming, which at the end of the day in gaming, that's those slight incremental speed gains give you an advantage where you're playing a driving game or you're on the battlefield. So what's next for the iPhone in terms of specs, in terms of you know, the next breakthrough technology? To be honest, I think we're going to see more of the same. So improvements in the camera. You know, and it's improvements in the camera. You're going to get a faster chip that works better. The gaming will improve. And their whole goal is simply to give people enough incremental advantage to buy a new phone and to stay in their walled garden because that's becoming more and more where the money for Apple comes is, is the the access to the TV, and also just the fantastic usability of its products compared to other products that are out there in the world. They've had me for 10 years and counting. Yeah, they've had me since the first iPhone. Dan Hutchison, what do you think Steve Jobs would say if he could see the Apple of today? 
the iPhone of today and the innovation and the ecosystem? Any thoughts on what he would think if he could see all that today? Um, I think he's probably asked the question of, what have you guys been doing? <laughs> How did you miss AI? And um, at the end of the day, they need to come up with another product. And they're kind of bifurcated, you know, because they've got hardware products that they're known for and the usability of those hardware products are known for. But they haven't gone, they haven't improved on those. The focus has all been on the app store and the applications, the TV, trying to get into the movie business, the content business, compete with Netflix, those sorts of things that really just keep you looking at their screens. What about the virtual reality headsets? It made a, a lot of news last year. Do you think that could be a major driver for Apple going forward? I seriously doubt that the headset can be a major driver for anyone. And I've been a real doubter on the headset. And Here's my thinking about the headset. Well, one is, is you're not going to carry it with you. In fact, most people won't carry a laptop anymore. They'll just carry their phone and maybe an iPad. But now that the iPad has gotten as heavy as a laptop with a keyboard, you wind up choosing one or the other, right, if you have to. But most of the time, you mm. just take your, your phone because it's such a universal device, right? And the other issue you have is the usability of those devices. The market is driven by the ability of people to either have screen time for it or to take it with them. The reason why the auto market is so huge and why it drove the last century is because it has about a 5% utilization. You buy a car and you drive it to work, you park it all day, you drive it home, you park it all night. And so if everybody has to have one and they don't use it as much, that's there. Well, maybe that's the case with the headsets and with the virtual reality. But, you know, you kind of have to come back to how do they get people to move towards that over just using their phone or something else for their reality? So, Dan, you mentioned that Apple appears to have missed the step in terms of cloud. They also seem to have missed AI revolution. Which companies are leading the innovation, do you think? Well, in terms of the uh, the cloud, I mean, clearly you've got Microsoft and Amazon leading the whole cloud space. And uh, uh, when it comes to AI, how can you say the word AI and not mention Nvidia's name? Yes, and and what they've been able to do. And then you know you know you've also got Intel and AMD trying to come back and dig their way out of the PC trough that they've been in with their AI chips. Um, but they've got a long ways to go because while they were focusing on AI, uh, um, Jensen Wang kind of snuck in and stole the party. And what about some of the Asian companies? Is TSMC still leading in terms of the logic chips? And do you think you see this continue going forward? Absolutely. The thing you, when you get in the lead of the semiconductor industry, you have so many advantages because of the scale you have. You know, that said, it's really up to the engineers to continue to make the innovations. And it's so easy to trip up and to fall behind. Intel did this in the 1980s. TSMC did it in the late 90s, 2000s. They started to slip behind. And really, they had slipped systematically behind until 28 nanometer. And that was when they started to catch back up again. So uh, it's really a question of, can they continue to innovate? And that may become a limit for them because the labor shortage of technical talent in Taiwan is becoming 
really short because they've grown so much, they've become so big, it's harder for them to hire. I know Samsung Electronics dominates in memory chips, but they've also made a lot of investments into the logic space. Does Samsung at all pose any threat to TSMC? Um, if we had the TSMC executives here talking honestly, they would probably tell you that their biggest worry is Samsung. Yep. And just because of the, the raw resources and their ability to throw money at it and their, their ability to use the scale from memory and then apply that to logic. And that's really the big issue for them. The hard part for Samsung is they're really good at making memory and memory is a very different animal to logic in terms of what you're building and how you build it because memory is a pure commodity. And logic is not a commodity. All of those designs go to a particular end system and they're totally dependent on where their customer, how, what the volume they want to buy. And if they say, oh, we don't want those wafers and they're halfway into production, you're kind of hosed. Where in memory, whatever you make, you can always sell. So it makes it a much more difficult market in terms of managing your fabs and managing the lots as they trace around the fabs. And that's something that TSMC has been a real master of. And the old model for TSMC, why they were so successful was the intersections in Taipei. You know, and why TSMC came out winning versus in memory, the intersections, everybody stops at the stoplight and waits. That's the way a memory fab works. And in a foundry fab, it has to work like an intersection in Taipei where the only rule is you don't hit the fender of the car next to you. <laughs> Organized chaos. <laughs> yeah. Dan, you've been covering the chip industry since the late 1970s, 1978, I think. What in those 40 years of covering this industry surprises you the most about the way the industry has evolved, technology, the overarching economic and political implications? What stands out in your mind when you look back over your career and gaze over that landscape? Well, I would have to say more recently, number one is that Washington finally figured out that chips were important and that all, all of those smart things. They were a little late to that game. Yeah, they were a little late to that game. I mean, there was some real visionaries in Japan in the 1970s that saw this late 60s, early early 70s that saw this and really pushed Japan, but then they had their own issues. And that kind of leads to the thing that I think has really surprised me the most is how difficult it is to lead this industry. And all of the leaders have succeeded by being global, by being at the best at what they do, and by selling to the best companies that are out there, and by buying from the best companies that can supply them. And Japan tried to create its own vertical supply chain. And that was really the seeds of its own destruction because the weakness in those layers were the weakness of the whole chain. Well, if you look at the companies that wound up succeeding, like Tokyo Electron, Advantest, uh, um, JSR, they succeeded because they really went global and, and went after the companies. TSMC has succeeded because they built a global set of customers and what we've seen is, is you know, just because you lead the market today doesn't mean you're going to lead the market in five or 10 years. We've seen this complete churn of companies. When I got in the industry, Texas Instruments and Motorola were the two top companies in the world. And the Japanese were on the rise. And Intel wasn't, I don't think Intel was even in the top 10 yet. 
So there's been this constant change and the companies that win are the ones that go global and then run faster than everybody else. It's all about running faster. And this raises an interesting question about China in its quest to develop kind of its own uh, homegrown technology infrastructure or ecosystem. Do you think it can succeed sustainably doing that or will it have to go global as well? Well, it doesn't matter what I think, but the history of it has been that you have to have a global source supply chain. You have to think globally. Trying to do it vertically is a path to failure. Uh, So based upon that history, I think the odds for China trying to have a complete vertical supply chain and then lock everything into China are really the seeds of it walking down the same path that Japan walked down. Dan, Apple and its supplies are moving more production away from China to India. Have you had a chance to look at an India-made iPhone? Um, I know we're we're working on that, but I don't think we've made that contrast yet. We're definitely uh, interested in figuring that one out. And, you know, of course, we've read all the stories and uh, India is a difficult challenge. That said, China was always a difficult challenge. The products that come from China in the uh, before Apple got there were noted for very poor quality. So uh, I think they can bring India back. India is definitely a very different challenge, though, because you don't have the kind of governmental control over the society there, over the business, that sort of thing in India that you have in China. So India still has a long ways to go. And then some of the infrastructure issues like stability of power, Uh, ability to get deliveries on time, those sorts of things are are constantly a problem in in India that you don't see in China. Dan, is there any questions that uh, you'd like us to ask you? I do think the one question that's kind of interesting here that the few people have asked me, that you asked me what question I missed, and it sort of came to me, and that is, 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 is this phone stabilizing or destabilizing to the geopolitics? And my sense is, is that now that China's making progress again, it actually sort of brings more stability to the battle between the U.S. and China over it. And, you know, they can see that they're making progress. I'm hoping that this actually helps to really get us more towards a peaceful solution to the tensions. Our guest has been Dan Hutchison, Vice Chair with Tech Insights. We've been talking China, Huawei, chips, tech, and the future. It's been a remarkable and insightful conversation. And Dan, we look forward to hearing more from you. Well, thank you for having me here. It was a real pleasure to be with you, Tom and John, you know, the both of you, and really just sort of suss these issues out. The pleasure has been ours. I'm Tom Corbett on assignment in the U.S. And I'm John Lee. This podcast has been edited by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.